On this week's episode of Where We Are, we'll discuss the Tennessee Three, the need for chaos voter. And I'm also going to prod Melissa to share a theory she shared with me that I think is uh, spot on. You're listening to Where We Are. listening to where we are we are the where's i'm michael i'm melissa and melissa we are recording this on the the evening of easter sunday he is risen happy resurrection sunday to folks we uh, we decided uh, to let y'all go to church in the morning instead of staying home and listening to (laughs) to where we are so we'll release this episode on monday our apologies uh, if you were waiting for it, but we figured it would be best to release on Monday. Melissa, we had a pretty pretty good Easter for me being laid up with this leg. Uh, we had a great dinner. Yeah. Had a made, friend over. Yeah, she and I, we made cacio e pepe focaccia. Um it was really good. The it was focaccia very good. turned out really well. It's my first time ever making focaccia, and I guess it was my friend Catherine, um, who makes bread a bit more often than I do. So I was pretty proud. It and was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, and then we made a pasta. Yeah, and we went to church in the morning, and Alara has a very, very bad ear infection again. She does, a poor sweetheart. And so we left church early. I couldn't even get communion because she was just, I could see that she was in pain. And. Uh, so we get home and, you know, I'm getting increasingly frustrated because I know that she's in pain and we have these little chewable tablets now for whether it's ibuprofen or acetaminophen. And I go to Michael, I come up, I bring her upstairs, I hand him the little tablet of Tylenol and I go, she really needs to take this because she's in a lot of pain and she'll feel so much better when she has this. Because, of course, she started on a round of antibiotics, but they haven't been going that long to actually truly work. And I proceed to go downstairs and I just hear Michael negotiating with her for about, like, I don't know, 10 minutes going, Alari, you really need to take this. It, it's it's good for you. It'll help you feel better. Um I really need you to do this. You know, and she's just turned two. She's two-year-old. So he's negotiating with the toddler. And then all of a sudden I get a text from him saying she took the Tylenol. What can I say? This man convinced a two-year-old, a very obstinate two-year-old, who will not take medicine from her mother, like any form of medicine, whether it's her antibiotic or a pain reliever, anything. And this man... Got her to take this Tylenol. And then, and then, when I wanted to give her one more dose for the nighttime for her going down to bed, I wanted her to take some ibuprofen this time so I knew that she'd get a good night's sleep. I hand it to her and she proceeds to take it from my hand and throws it across the room. I go and pick it up. I bring upstairs to Michael and I go, she's refusing to take this from me again. He he looks at her in the eyes, puts it in her hand, and goes, you need to take this. She looks at it and goes, candy, and pops it into her mouth and starts chewing. Look, <laughs> first of all, me and my lot, we got a special connection. Second of all, 
uh, I'm still providing value to this household, even though I've been laid up for like three and a half Thank weeks. Thank God. Still providing <laughs> I need help. value. I'm in the trenches. Still, uh, still making a contribution. And so, uh, you know, I, there are some things I can't do, like walk or <laughs> put the girls to bed or cook. But I can negotiate with the toddler uh, and, and say very sweet things to her and then give her medicine and hope that she obliges, uh, which she did. It was like, for it to happen in front of you, it was, it was, it was like one of the proudest moments I've had as a father that she, we just had a communication and she was vibing with me, even though... She's dealing with so much pain. Yeah, she took that candy immediately. <laughs> that baby took that candy immediately. She trusts me. I said, baby, this is for your own good. And she was like, okay, daddy. Uh, so, big Easter win. Big Easter win. Uh, what do you say? Should we get to the... I mean, so there, there's a... Honest... Actually, I'm not going to say it's... I'm not, I was about to say we have another sort of lighthearted item, but it's not. I think it's <laughs> I think it's legit. I want to see. I think Amanda Mole should write the piece on this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, uh, but we'll we'll save it. it. You should substack it. By the way, that's a whole other topic we could discuss. <laughs> yeah. All the substack drama, um, but. Let's save that. I want to get to some of the news. Uh, just before we jump in, I do just want to say, my goodness. And, and if you've been listening to The Morning Five, you've probably picked up on this. Uh, the foreign policy news that is coming over the transom <laughs> is, is oh. just wild. So we're we're probably going to do a foreign policy episode uh, a sort of global survey uh, in in the coming weeks just because um, I think it's a really significant time. Uh, I, I think that within the next six months, I think we're going to see something develop on the global stage that takes over the news in a way similar to Russia invading Ukraine. Like I, ju- I just think there's, there is so much percolating, uh, that in, in the next six months, I would not be surprised to see. It may just, it may just be another major spark with Russia, but you look at what's happening in China, you look at developments with Iran and Israel, uh, and, and there's just, there's just a I lot, mean, the, a lot happening. The Yemen war may have just gotten a ceasefire. That's I mean, right. Which is just wild. You look to at me. Yemen. You look at Macron went to China and and yeah. how France is moving, even as Macron navigates his own domestic and crisis. China is the one who brokered the ceasefire mainly. For That's Yemen. exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. right. So so we'll we'll try and cover a lot of that in greater depth, but. Uh, for this episode, we want to focus domestically, and we'll start with uh, the Tennessee Three. Yep. Um, uh, do you want to offer an overview, or should I? 
Sure, I can offer an yeah, overview. Please. So, two members, uh, two lawmakers for Tennessee were expelled. There was a vote held this past Thursday, April 6th, which resulted in Justin Jones and Justin Pearson being expelled from the Tennessee State House of Representatives. With a third Democrat, Gloria Johnson, she kept her seat by one vote. Um, now, why was a vote even brought to the table? How could the how could they have been expelled? Well, on March thirtieth, um, a lot of protesters gathered at Tennessee State Capitol, which is in Nashville, in the wake of the shooting. In the at wake Covenant. of the shooting at Covenant, calling for tighter gun control laws, and so you know, protesters were in the hallways, in the galleries of the House and Senate chambers, chanting, shouting, protesting. Um, and on the House floor, um, the three representatives, um, Jones, Pearson, and um, Johnson, they they brought the proceedings to a halt. Um, and they Using got, a, blow they got on a bullhorn. Um, and a there bullhorn, was, yeah. yeah, there was a, there was a video filmed by Republican on the House floor during the event. Um, and it showed the three speaking on the floor. Um, with, you know, everybody protesting in the background. Um, and so the Republicans hold a majority of, uh, hold a very large, sorry, a very large majority of seats. So then they pledged a rapid response. So they brought, uh, you know, this expelling to a vote. And now Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, they've been expelled. But now it's up to local councils um, that are related to, you know, where their constituency is. They will now have to actually have to decide themselves, these councils, of whether or not um, both Jones and uh, Pearson can actually return to their seats or not, um, or whether or not they will replace uh, Jones and Pearson with somebody else um, and then wait for an election, um, which isn't too far away, apparently. So this obviously set so many things running set many people on fire just um the uh the president the white house has invited um jones and pearson to the white house um vice president harris already visited with them yes in the state on friday yep that is right and so you know you have many i mean my main question michael that i want to discuss with you because you know, I'm mulling this over myself over the past few days since this happened, is does this set a precedent for, um, you know, other chambers, you know, yes. other states? Yes. Um, was this, is this an undemocratic mood, move? Sorry. Yes. Um, how is it an undemocratic move? Uh, do, <laughs> will Pearson and Jones return to their seat? Was did did all these Republicans make this vote knowing that, oh, you know, their lo- their localities will actually put them back and we're just, you know, this will just be a major show, a major slap on the wrist. Is there a risk for either of them to not be replaced? That those yeah, obviously those those are the the major questions. Yeah. Okay, so this is one of those stories and there are many of them in politics where so much rides on where you start the story. Mm-hmm. If you start the story with the members, with Pearson and 
Jones being expelled, then you go, what an egregious, uh, what an egregious uh, act. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know much else about why it happened, Mm -hmm. then, you know, there are some pretty, some pretty strident stories that you could tell about why they, (laughs) why they were expelled. Some of which may have merit, by the way. Now, Republicans in the state want to start the story elsewhere. They want to start the story not too far back, because you go too far back and there are some real problems. But they want to start the story with uh, with the legislative session being interrupted, mm-hmm. brought to a halt, mm-hmm. the, the democratic process mm-hmm. of... The business of the Tennessee uh, Senate uh, being brought to a halt Mm -hmm. unapologetically by Jones and Pearson. I've read reports that at some point uh, Johnson said that she she would have acted differently or or regretted it or or does not think she should do it in the future. But but Republicans are uh, in, in the state are saying, you know. They intentionally, knowingly violated the rules of this body. They say that they're glad that they did it. And so the only uh, uh, expelling them from this body is a reciprocal sort of response to their dishonoring the body. Now, the the problem, there are a lot of problems with that, Uh I'll just, to put my cards on the table, I think that what they did deserved censure. Mm. I, I think, I, I think the, I, I think that, uh, that is, that that would have been an appropriate response from a Republican legislature to, uh, to censure uh, all three of those members for, uh, knowingly outside of procedure bringing the business of the legislature to a halt. The problem is uh, they didn't censure. They expelled two of the members from from their seats, which is such an extraordinary overreaction particularly given the context of what they were protesting about. I mean, it's politically stupid, on, on, and yeah. we'll talk about that. But just in terms of collegiality and the idea that you're, yes, I, I, I'll accept the argument that a certain level of disrespect, the, 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 the Democratic members would say uh, that it was uh, warranted or, or, or perhaps they would say, you know, it wasn't against the Republicans in control of the of of the Senate, but on behalf of the protesters yeah, and the who were protesting and and being making sure that they were being heard, um, such an overreaction to the extent that it becomes hard to talk about them interrupting the session with a bullhorn and, and all all that because the response is so egregious that's the more immediate sort of mm-hmm. that's the more immediate sort of 
uh, frankly, like anti-democratic response, even though it happened through, you know, there was a vote on it and that yeah. way it was democratic. But to, to strip those constituents of representation in the body uh, is is a real problem. On the political side, it's a problem because no one knew who these who these folks were, and you just turned them into folk heroes. The, uh, Jones and Pearson were on Meet the Press this morning yeah. uh, on Sunday. Uh, uh, they're all over the TV. Uh, there are obvious problems, at least in terms of optics. I would say substantively with the fact that they expelled the two young black members and not the woman for whatever explanations they have just as politicians there should have been some thought as to the message that would send and the fact that there wasn't that thought or they didn't heed those thoughts is an indication all on its own of sort of what the priorities were who they're playing to who they think they represent, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so, so th- that's a problem. Just the last thing I'll say here, Melissa, is right. I think it's important to go even further back, which is to say the reason why Pearson, Jones, and Johnson were, were felt justified. And again, that's not to say that they were, but to say that they felt justified is because they really couldn't in a reasonable way have the voices of their constituents heard reasonably because the Tennessee, the Republicans in the Tennessee legislature have so gerrymandered, Mm -hmm. have so rigged the rules of that state legislature that it is, uh, um it it is extremely difficult for a for for uh democrats to even think about approaching uh a majority in that body uh the way that they have you look at the map for instance of like how Nashville is split mm-hmm. up, and you know th- these are maps designed to to uh, to by geography limit Democrats' access to seats in the legislature, and so that like you could go back into all of that history and understand why even again even if you. And again, I'll I'll say I think it was wrong to bring the business of the Tennessee uh, State Senate to a halt outside of procedure in that way. But you can understand uh, why such actions were taken, given how the deck is stacked against uh, Democrats and the constituencies that they represent in the body in ways that aren't just reducible to the fact that Tennessee is a majority Republican state. Yeah, I, it it obviously it will be very interesting to see if both legislators are restored um, by their localities, and if not, what happens and the ramif the ramifications that will continue to follow even even if they are restored, and then obviously, especially if they aren't restored, when it comes to like the um obviously the talks around the undemocratic uh, 
sort of feeling process, whatever of, of the entire thing, but it's, um, yeah, it's just very, it's just very interesting to me that after such a horrific shooting that, uh, a power move like this would be taken when you do, when you do have such a giant majority sort of thing. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's in politically, it's just doesn't make a terrible amount of sense to me, but we'll end that discussion there. Well, I do, you raise something that I didn't address, which is, and I think this might be one of the more, um, one of the ways in which the events of the last week have a long, have a longer tail than people might suspect. Obviously we need to track whether Jones and Pearson, I expect them to be, uh, Same, to be reappointed, right? yeah. but you raise the very good point of we're in this environment on not just policy issues, but on these sort of uh, these acts of antagonism mm-hmm. of of sort of liberal states, progressive states responding to conservative states, and vice versa. And yes, it sets a it sets a terrible precedent. You're now going to have like I don't think it was a demand rising up from constituencies to invoke the legislative procedure to expel those members. Like mm-hmm. honestly, I, I I would be surprised if a majority of voters knew that you could expel yes, exactly. members by yeah. a vote. So th- this was something designed by the legislators in the Republican legislators in the Tennessee GOP. The problem is in different states will have different rules, but the problem I mean it really doesn't matter. The the problem is is that now you're going to have voters mm-hmm. saying ex you know we, we uh, this this member said something that was offensive. Uh, expel them. Or this member is the only, this member of this state legislative body is the only thing standing between mm-hmm. what we want yeah. uh, uh, getting done. Ex- just expel them. We'll deal, we'll deal with the repercussions after. And so, yes, I just, Melissa, I just think it bodes really ill. I, I wish that there were I wish that there were statesmen frankly in the Tennessee state senate who considered uh, who were able to balance what they felt as their duty to let's frame it in like the best way possible their duty to sort of uphold the the decorum uh and the procedures of the state uh, uh, of the legislative body with the shockwaves this would send both in their state and nationally. Um, it's, it's, uh, so, so yeah, I am, I am concerned about, I am concerned about that for sure. All right. Moving on, Melissa. Yeah. Uh, speaking of chaos <laughs> and it is chaotic. What is the need for chaos voter? Yeah, so I caught wind of this study that was published on February 17th of this year, so just, you know, a couple months ago, by three academics. Two of them are from University of 
of Aarhus um, and um, a third from Sciences Po that's in Paris. So these European researchers who decided to look at um, eight different studies of individuals living across the United States and show about the motiva- the motivations and the motivators um, behind something called the need for chaos voter. And a need for chaos voter, um, they want to circulate hostile political information um, in order to unleash chaos or to burn down the entire political order or the entire political system um, in the hope that they gain status through that process by trying to bring down that political order. And this study it ran like six or seven different tests from these from these eight other studies to find out that yes, the these need for chaos voters do actually exist for the idea of chaos. Like the chaos is the motivation and not just partisanship, which that was the most interesting conclusion that I found from this study because like my brain would automatically say in a time of hyperpolarization, you would think that like a need for chaos voters is not, you know, at least very, you know, fairly motivated by their part, whatever partisan views that they hold, that that's why they want to go, you know, sow this chaos, spread hostile political information. And this study through these various tests shows that, um, uh, even after accounting for partisan motivations, that these these voters are motivated to share these types of political rumors to gather others around them in sort of like spreading and misinformation and things like that for the idea that they actually want to sow chaos and take down the political system. And at a time when, in a separate study from Yale, what, like a year ago, a year and a half ago, Yale, which around outrage online and how outrage is actually very, very um, uh, appealing to people and uh, that that's like the sort of motivator for how people communicate with one another on social media and online, that rage is actually like one of the biggest sort of emotions that you can find in our sort of political discourse and it's social media just sort of sows that rage. So I think about that kind of study from Yale and then I think about this study about that there's a need for chaos voter out there. It's not like they're like in the hundreds of thousands, but there are enough. And this study very, very rightly says... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I would just imagine... At the national level, there, I mean, how do do the researchers suggest how many, what percentage of of voters fall in this category? Not from what I was reading, because they go through you know like the literature review, because they had they reviewed eight different studies on these need for chaos voters. So I'm thinking that I'd probably need to dig into one of those studies probably to find an answer like that. Yeah, um, with the defining of what is actually a need for chaos voter, because that's what these other studies do. Um, but it, the framework is an interesting one to think about the sort of category. Yes. Because I, you know, you think about like, again, a a another piece of research, which I know that we've talked about on this podcast 
um, the more in common research where they came up with the sort of typologies of where people fit, like where do Americans fit into when it comes to whether they're liberal or conservative. And it's the fringes who actually, which are very small, like, you know, five to seven percent on either side, actually control a lot of the the narratives and the ideology and what we're actually conversing about day in, day out. I think of a study like that from more in common than I think about this need for chaos voter. And I'd kind of want to ask them, could you throw this in now that we have quite a few studies that are showing that we've got a pretty good grasp that these voters do in fact exist. Can we throw that into the mix and see what it does? Cause I, I just wanted to finish my one, uh, the one thought these uh, researchers for this study do point out that in a time of social media, where information can spread so fast, all you have to do is sow an idea, find others around you that you know would be obviously vulnerable to that kind of information or vulnerable to that idea. And you can, I, I mean, obviously we have Q, like we have QAnon, like we have things that I'm not, I, I don't know if QAnon would be termed a, you know, a sure. chaos voter because yeah, we don't yeah. actually know who QAnon is, but yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, um, who and or what QAnon is. Um, I have to say that these days with AI, chat, GPT, um, but <laughs> wait, you can't just, you can't, <laughs> you can't just like throw out the theory that QAnon is and always has been artificial intelligence and like move on. <laughs> Have you seen ChatGPT? <laughs> Have you seen the articles that ChatGPT can lie? Oh, that's very funny. Okay, proceed. <laughs> anyway, proceed. Sorry, I was like, I'll take my tinfoil hat off. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to end it there that with social media, the need for a chaos voter is more concerning than ever, even if there might be an idea that a need for a chaos voter has existed for a long time, maybe yeah. decades. So right yeah. now it's the the power <laughs> that they hold is and the scariness around it is amplified because of social media. Yeah. So right. So uh, one of the things I thought re- looking at this research is, um, it's like I felt like I've read, uh and heard of s- other ways of describing a yeah. similar set mm-hmm. of voters. Me too. And that these researchers made a choice in just how they charge the categorization. Mm-hmm. I don't think it all reduces down to, because I do think they're actually talking about, they're trying to get to a narrower set. But like, it does remind me of just like thinking about like low information highly engaged um anti establishment sort of sort of like like those are the characteristics mm-hmm. of uh, of this set at least as i sort of understand it and those are of course less charged ways of, of sure? describing them than <laughs> that they need chaos now interestingly mm-hmm. at the end of the research the the researchers say you like the temptation may be to, you know, just think about how you could work against these voters. But it's important, like, you hear their concerns. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I might start with not calling them need for chaos. <laughs> but like, I, like, I'm not sure that the the framing, if if that's what you want, which is to, like, you, you want politicians and, like, the body politic to, like, try and, attend to some of the concerns that these voters have, the disenfranchisement they feel, 
uh, <laughs> then, yeah, I don't think Need for Chaos Voters necessarily advances that. So that would be sort of one yeah. one thing the one thing to say. Yeah, and you've just mentioned yes at the very end of the research about how to actually like um, sort of engage or get through to beyond understanding, which studies like this are trying to understand, but the sort of like uh, how do you actually stop various agents of chaos in the system and i kind of was scratching my head and going you know it, you know there are studies about obviously again like i already mentioned about partisans people are hyper partisan who want to spread hostile political rumors that it's their partisanship that motivates them i was thinking like that conversation is already difficult enough when it comes to talking to someone who is hyper partisan around like you know having an, a normal discussion, one that's back and forth, fair, whatever. But a need for chaos, that just seems so basic instinct human almost that it's the type of motivation that I feel like, how would you even go about right. trying to converse or convince or not just see, like even seeing their point of view right. would seem wild to me because I... I don't have a need for chaos. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I do know what part. But I do know what partisan motivations feel like because there are yes. certain issues yes, yes. in which I am absolutely very partisan on, and like I'm, I freely admit when I am, especially when you are, and I are discussing on the podcast, so that our listeners know, like, you know what, I, I absolutely know that I'm very like to the left on this or, you know, whatever sort of issue it is. Like, I understand that motivation on certain set of issues, but a need for chaos. Oh man, just an under a basic understanding to then you kind of need that to even start a conversation or to even move into like, so reconciliation. I don't know. Yeah. You know, so I, I think it's probably destructive to our politics. If we had, if, if we had both politicians and just average people thinking, does this person fit in the need for chaos box <laughs> no, or does that person? Absolutely. On the other hand, personally, gosh, haven't you been in conversations with people in your life who you just go, oh, we are not having a rational conversation right. here. Yeah. And they seem uh, to, they seem to know that what they're saying is not true. They're mm -hmm. just, they just get consciously or subconsciously, they're just getting a kick out of pressing buttons mm -hmm. and sort of being against the grain yeah. or saying the controversial thing. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, the sort of more passive terms or the the sort of the attempt to to put every voter in this hyper rational they're responding to the circumstances of their life sort of box no just like out of personal experience there are there are people because they think politics is a game and because mm -hmm. they just and you know i do think it is they they don't see how politics is working for them their their encounters with uh with with government seem to work against their interests as opposed to for um uh but but also like it's about getting like 
personal satisfaction out of the exchange as opposed to being like politics is a forum for public service and uh-huh. you know how yeah. like i know so many people in my life who are like yeah. that unfortunately yeah and then if you because the the issue the uh, the the 2020 study that you love on you love in terms of its usefulness for explaining our politics on political sectarianism you bring that into this discussion. Well, that's gonna be on the that's gonna be in the book. Let's not open <laughs> up that that present uh, too early. But I think, to your point, I'm glad you raised it. I think that strikes the perfect balance between, uh, sort of, not, not loading too much emotional weight like Need for Chaos Voter does, yeah. and not too much negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, also not, um, not sort of bending over backwards to try and uh, rationalize the irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, but there will be more than enough time to talk about to talk about that. But Melissa, oh, I'm rationality! So... It would be such a weird discussion about this because you know. I get in very heated debates about it, and it depends on the the hat I'm wearing, which is it really bothers me when politicians and, and like, sort of pundits sort of rationalize actual decision-making in government on the basis that voters are irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, because I oh, just yeah. think public servants, they they can't respond to their constituents generally as if voters are irrational, the whole system of self-governance falls to pieces if that's how you operate. No, no, but, but if I'm wearing the hat where it's like, yeah, I've had conversations with voters who are not thinking about <laughs> who, who who are who are not thinking rationally, who don't care to think rationally when it comes to politics, uh, then I'm like, you know, then I'm... But here's the interesting yeah. thing, because I completely agree with you, especially for thinking more along like the various again like you're saying like the conversations you've had in life with folks who like you you can start to tell like this is a button pushing like that kind of thing but this study strangely because they put you know they take these eight other studies and the need for chaos voter is being you know obviously slowly cultivated and defined and the motivations are what this study is about it makes this whole category of voters seem completely rational because there is an explanation. Like there's an explanation motivation. So is yeah, that so yeah. interesting that it gives a rationality to I mean, all yeah, I, I'm in a way, in a way, but I think, I think enough in a way that it's, it's important to note. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's a whole no, other. No, I, th- no, I, no, I'm you've, you're, you're winning me over with your insistence. <laughs> okay. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, um, happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, so there are two more topics. One, just quickly, would urge you to go to reclaiminghope.substack.com where you will read my thoughts on the Trump arraignment. So we're not going in depth about that on the show today, uh, but I wrote an essay on it. So would urge you to go to reclaiminghope.substack.com. Here are Uh, Read my thoughts on that. And while you're there, uh, leave us a comment. Become a paid subscriber. uh, Click around the website. You know, spend some time there. Don't just read my essay. 
uh, uh, there's a lot you could do on the Substack, including a new like notes feature, Twitter like yeah. thing. Twitter 2.0. Yeah, it's very cool. I we've already been using it. I like it a lot. It's nice. Yeah. Okay. Here's where I want to close, Melissa, which is. <laughs> we were watching TikToks. Uh, as we do. As we do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you... Oh. So it, I almost want to make up a different story than what happened because I actually think that there are... I understand the concerns around this, but the video that prompted our conversation mm-hmm. was there's a video about um, uh, there's a huge debate on TikTok and in real life about whether you should allow kids to do sleepovers. Yeah. And I think that's a legitimate debate, all that. But it got us talking and you said something that I thought was brilliant and spot on. What was it, Melissa? I was because I see it again and again and again. So I've brought this up. I've tweeted this out before where, um, you know, I've got I get I still get these TikToks and probably because I stop because I just have to go. Oh, my goodness, because I like seeing the comments, how many likes it gets where it says, you know, don't risk the skip of, you know, skipping over this TikTok because, you know, something good will happen to you in the next seven minutes kind of thing. And I go, this is literally just chain mail. But for Gen Z, the type of chain mail that we all know that Gen X and baby boomers had to deal with when chain mail was a thing and people started figuring out, wait, there's like a whole catch. Okay, to this. that's fine. But get to your really good yes. point. <laughs> no, 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 no. Get, get to the insightful point. <laughs> Come on, dude. I'm building up to it, my guy. It's like I'm a performing monkey. Anyways. Yep. And so, you know, with with a story like this, I I think that TikTok is the kind of platform for millennials and Gen Z the way that, like, local news has been for, again, the baby boomer generation. And that when certain issues are harped on or you're told that they're, like, a huge issue or, you know, you know, hundreds of children are kidnapped daily. You get a generation of parents, you know, baby boomers who think that there are hundreds of children being abducted on the daily in the United States and therefore obviously start to parent in that way. And we all know what I'm talking about, the various steps that, you know, your parents or grandparents, however you're related to the generations that heard that over and over again on the local news TikTok is the same way for millennials and Gen Z in that it's it's the incubator. And it's not just fears about kids. It's like, here's the thing that you're not supposed to eat. Here's the product you're not supposed to yes. use. Here's Here, the here's, thing that will kill you. Here's uh, what the government isn't health. telling you. Here's what the government isn't telling you. <laughs> here's what's not on the news yes. that the mainstream news doesn't want you to know. Yeah, TikTok is that new incubator of those kinds of narratives and they blow them up in a way because you see all the likes, you see all the comments. Plus it's actually even worse because you used to, you know, a baby boomer or the generations before them would watch the local news and maybe you would discuss it at the dinner table. Maybe you discuss it with your neighbor next door or the group of friends that you have, but it's not like you knew 722,000 people had liked it. And there were 6,743 comments. This is so smart. This is such a smart insight, right? Which is you, the hubris 
the presentism of, well, we're we're not we're not dumb and gullible. Yeah. Like that's no, why I started off the chainmail thing. Because like this isn't like local news. This isn't like neighborhood chatter. I'm the I I'm the master of my feed. Like I'm getting information directly mm-hmm. and I'm sifting through it. Like I have the I'm being discerning. I, I'm being discerning. I have access to all this information and I don't believe everything i i you know apply my analysis to it and it's like the world is open to me not like those boomers who would like hear something at the corner store and take it as gospel or you know like or hear on the local news that something was happening and blow it out of proportion uh but like guess what it turns out um (laughs) we're we're not as great as uh uh discerning uh uh, a, a TikTok feed and the proportionality of uh, different bits of advice and tips and the I mean, motivation behind it as we think we are. <laughs> you know, I started off with that chainmail thing of like the, the TikToks that say don't risk the skip, you know, something good will happen to you in the next seven minutes if you share this and like this and follow this account. I'm like, the channels are different, but the human behavior is the same. Totally. Totally. And, so and, chew, chew on that. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I have been for the last few days. Maybe the listeners will be like, obviously, I've already, thought about, that, I've already thought about it. And if so, you know, good for you. That's why, <laughs> that's why we're honored to have you as a listener. Yeah. Because uh, you think of these things ahead of us. But I thought it was it was worth sharing. We'd love to hear thoughts about Melissa's theory. Uh, over social or uh, email us. But Melissa, I think that's all we have for this week's episode. We're going to try and get through another week. I'm not walking yet. I probably won't walk by the time of next episode, but I'm, I feel my leg getting stronger. The bones are fusing <laughs> and uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm well on my way. And so are you, dear. Mm. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to till you can walk peg leg, Joe. I know. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Where We Are. Happy Easter. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. And uh, we'll be back with the Morning Five on Tuesday. So we're basically just kind of pushing things back uh, this week. Until then. Bye. I still wanna turn up Yeah, I still wanna turn up